Thanks for joining us. I'm Steve Shu, And I'm Corey Washington, and we're your hosts for Manifold. Well, Corey, we've been at podcasting for about a year now, and uh, I have to say I've really enjoyed it. Uh, me too, Steve. And uh, we've been enjoying it so much, and we've had enough. We've had quite a bit of success in getting guests to come on the show that we have a backlog, a queue of unreleased episodes. I think we have actually at the one every two weeks rate that we've been going at, we've got four months of unreleased audio. So I think our goal is to bring the backlog down a little bit by releasing at faster than once every two weeks, maybe going to a one a week schedule for a while. Now we can't promise to our listeners that we're going to be able to keep it on a one per week uh, schedule because I guess you and I both have day jobs. We'll backslide periodically. Yes, but but let's give it a try. And uh, let us know. Let us know in Twitter or by email what you guys think and uh, suggest episodes, give yeah, us if feedback. Yeah, if you want us to do one a week, uh, we're going to need some help yes, in maybe identifying guests. Patreon. All right. So that's the announcement. We uh, will start releasing some episodes at a faster rate as long as we can. Thanks very much. Thank you, guys. Corey, our guest today is Bruno Massaich. He is originally from Portugal. Bruno earned a PhD in political science at Harvard under Harvey Mansfield. He served as Portugal's Secretary of State for European Affairs from 2013 to 2015, and is now widely regarded as a leading geopolitical thinker with deep insights concerning the future of Eurasia, America, and the relations between the West and China. He's the author of two books published in 2018 to wide acclaim, the first being The Dawn of Eurasia, and the second being Belt and Road. He has a new book coming out in five months, which I hope to talk about at the end of the podcast, which is about America. And uh, hopefully we'll get to that near the end. Bruno and I met in Beijing just briefly over the summer, uh, where he spent the last year, I think, or more than a year, as a senior fellow at Renmin University. Bruno, I'd like to start by talking about where you were at in your own life around 2015. I believe the socialists had defeated your party and you were leaving politics or government and you decided to undertake a long trip east. Am I correct? Right. So I, um, you know, politics can be very interesting, but can also be bit boring. There's a lot of routine. There's no free time. Uh, and, and also there's no freedom in the sense of and to give you a concrete example, as a serving politician in the Portuguese government, I couldn't go to Russia. I didn't accept invitations from there because it was the time of the of the Ukraine crisis. And you always have to understand that you're representing your country, not yourself. So your freedom is very much curtailed in, in that obvious sense. Uh, once I was out of government, I could do a number of things. You know, I could go visit Iran, visit uh, Russia. Um, countries I was very interested in and, and just travel without a schedule, without any constraint. Um, it was also the case, you know, more practical notes. Uh, I was concerned when I was in government of not looking for a job while I was in government. I don't know how other politicians do this, but then suddenly you, you're out of office overnight. Uh, and so I wanted to do something while I, I looked for professional opportunities uh, later on. I was Different reasons, but I, I guess it's pretty unusual just to leave and travel for six months, uh, not be concerned about uh, your job or your career for a pretty long period of time. And not when you're 18, but when you're already in your 40s. Which 
uh, political party did you belong to in the Portuguese government, uh, Bruno? It's called a Social Democratic Party, but it's the center-right party. One of those peculiarities of Portuguese politics that uh, the center-right party is a social democratic party. And going back to our transition to democracy, I'm very much tilted to the left. And your, I understand the title that you had, but could you just say a little bit briefly about your role in that uh, government in the years you were there? Right. It's an interesting role. It's common to every government in the EU. It's the person in the government that is in charge of connecting your government to Brussels. Um, there's uh, many people would not know this necessarily. There's a lot of daily friction. Um, EU institutions in Brussels want uh, the country to go in a certain direction or a particular sector or a policy or a law. And uh, the government has other ideas because it, it's following its own constituency. So there's a lot of communication that is needed to reduce the friction. Um, over time, people have discussed this particular role in national governments. There's this idea that uh, the, the, the Europe minister could be in Brussels, living in Brussels. And there's been this idea in the past, but it gives you a sense that, in fact, you end up spending more time in Brussels than in your capital. And your job uh, has the peculiarity of being uh, completely cross-cutting. One week I would be dealing with fisheries, the next week with Ukraine crisis, then digital policy, then uh, uh, infrastructure, railways, roads. Uh, it could be really anything. When we talk a little bit later about how you view the future of the EU, I think you can draw on that experience uh, in telling us uh, how you view it. Um, but I want to go back to your travels post-government. As you traveled eastward across Eurasia, did you already have a theoretical framework? Were you thinking you were going to write a book, or was it just that you felt some wanderlust and wanted to travel, and perhaps the book er emerged from that travel? Yeah, it was, it was less planned um, than it may look like. I started writing some pieces for magazines, and they were well-received. I see I could do it. Uh, I had this idea of um, traveling over the borderlands of Europe and Asia and seeing whether a book could be made out of it. Um, those years, you know, 2014, 15, were very suggestive of this uh, idea of Eurasia if you had your eyes open, and especially if you're involved, actively involved in politics. Uh, it was the years of the Belt and Road had been launched in 2013, uh, the years, of course, of the Ukraine crisis, then the refugee crisis. It gave a sense, which I describe in the preface to the book, that uh, the action was all in those borderlands between Europe and Asia. Ukraine, uh, the refugee crisis, Syria, Turkey, um, the new connections that were being built in Central Asia, and so on and so forth. Uh, that's where interesting things were happening. And so that's actually, uh, I say that in the preface, and it's, uh, it's true. In this case, it is true. Um, that's how I got interested in the idea in the first place. So when I first heard about the Belt and Road Initiative, my initial reaction was, my God, I these poor Chinese are going to waste so much money building infrastructure in a kind of possibly uninteresting, underdeveloped part of the world. This can't really be such a great idea. Now, in your book on the Belt and Road, you make the point that infrastructure is just a small piece of this plan and that the plan is really, in a sense, kind of visualizing a new Chinese world order. Could you elaborate on that? Right. So in the first book where I talk about Eurasia, uh, write a little bit, uh, not more than 20 pages, about a particular aspect of the Belt and Road, which is this uh, borderlands in the middle. But then I decided I needed a full book on the Belt and Road because the core of the Belt and Road is not that. Still today, there's this misunderstanding that the Belt and Road is about Central Asia and the steppes and uh, reviving the Silk Road and so on. 
but it's not. That's not where the future of the Belt and Road is going to be decided. And as you say, the Belt and Road is not about transport infrastructure. Uh, it's, if anything, you know, if you want a simple label, it's a global or transnational industrial policy. But the focus is on industry and trade and not on transport infrastructure or not on connectivity, unless your concept of connectivity is much broader and includes value chains, supply chains, industrial policy, and so on. Now, a lot of people, going back to Mackinder, as you know, um, theorize about Eurasia as a giant world island that controls the globe. So one might think of BRI as an effort for the Chinese to avoid being isolated by uh, the American, the U.S. Navy, um, and maintain contact with the west end of Eurasia. But you make another argument, which is that it's actually part of a plan, a conscious plan to avoid the middle income development trap. So could, could you describe why you think BRI, and actually also comment on whether the, this, this is explicit in the way the Chinese talk about it, uh, how will it help them avoid the middle income development trap? In, 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 in different ways. Um, China needs to become technologically more developed. And how do you do that uh, if you don't have access to markets, if you don't have access to suppliers, if you don't have access to uh, global regulatory standards? I think the Chinese concluded, and I believe they were right about this, that those would be the obstacles. Uh, and if you look at a case like Huawei, I think you see that, that the obstacles in the path of development of Huawei and similar companies and Chinese tech sector as a whole are very much connected to the attempt, which they saw coming, uh, that uh, America and perhaps some European countries would make to um, uh, run Huawei and the Chinese tech sector out of markets, out of suppliers. Uh, in a way, there's no better example of why the Belt and Road is necessary than the troubles that Huawei has been facing. The attempt to project power outside your borders so that you can guarantee stable markets, stable suppliers, is at the core of the Belt and Road. And uh, the Huawei uh, story tells you how important that is. Can you describe or explain what the middle income development trap is? Mm -hmm. In a non-technical way, it is the problem faced by many countries uh, in initial stages of development they rely on sources of growth uh, that will soon dry up. Uh, cheap labor force, uh, foreign investment, urbanization, uh, rapid uh, education and, and the growth of skills among your population, also a rapidly growing population. All these are obvious ways to grow at first, but they are not sustainable over the long run. So over time, you need to rely on other sources of growth, in particular innovation and technology. That requires a change or a transformation of your economic model, which many people think can be done purely on uh, inside your uh, country through domestic policy, through structural reforms. But uh, I don't think China believes in that. Uh, China thinks that you need a truly global approach to your development strategy. And the Belt and Road is that uh, the global approach. So it's going to solve the problem by facilitating, uh, basically improving supply chains for uh, Chinese companies, or it's going to facilitate it by improving access to technology. I um, mean, it, it looks like on the service and infrastructure project. So how we're having these new roads going to facilitate? I see how it helps supply chains, but aside from that, how we're having these roads going to help solve these other issues? Right, but don't. Um 
don't get too focused uh, or too fixated on the roads and railways. In a way, they came first chronologically, but not first uh, logically or in terms of importance. Already happening, perhaps less um, visible in the Western media, is the development, the growth, the construction of industrial parks on a massive scale, uh, the um, relocation of industry from China to uh, other countries. Uh, this is, uh, I think, much more significant than, of course, you need the roads to connect these new industries and connect these industrial parks, connect markets uh, and industry. But what's happening on the other side, on the side of trade, on the side of uh, reducing trade barriers and on the side of industrial policy, in particular the way China has been able to actually influence and shape industrial policy in other countries. Pakistan is a very good example of this. That's much more significant, even if sometimes it's not so present in the Western media. But I read a piece the other day, for example, about how the European Union is becoming very concerned about imports of Chinese steel from Malaysia or Indonesia, where uh, Chinese steelmakers have uh, uh, opened uh, new factories and new steel plants. I mean, that's precisely the Belt and Road at work, uh, that for several reasons, uh, it's a good idea to relocate some of your heavy industry to Indonesia. You can uh, solve the pollution problem or start to address it at the very least. Uh, you can uh, work around uh, tariffs um, because uh, imports from Indonesia are tariff-free uh, in the European Union. Um, you can reduce costs. You can still take advantage of cheap labor force in Indonesia that no longer exists in China. And more important than all these factors, you can actually move your capital and your labor force to areas that are technologically more advanced rather than let them stagnate in, um, in sectors uh, like a heavy steel industry that have very little uh, growth potential in China. Uh, so, you know, when you see a piece like this, you could, see, you could say, well, this is actually much more important than the Belt and Road, which I think some people would say. My response would be, no, this is the Belt and Road at work uh, and in a way already uh, at, at full speed in some of these uh, cases. I think there are five pillars in the original, maybe the original Xi Jinping speech about BRI. I think there are five pillars and infrastructure is only one of them. And maybe the others are covering these other aspects. Yeah, the other four very, very quickly. Um, you have uh, you have trade, uh, you have uh, industry, you have uh, people to people contact uh, and you have policy. Uh, clearly, uh, infrastructure uh, has a certain role and in a way comes first, as I said. But I wouldn't even call it the most important pillar. So, Bruno, I think, I don't recall whether it was in your book or in a talk of yours that I heard, where you talk about a non-public plan for Pakistan, which was, I think, drawn up by the Chinese and the Pakistani government, but uh, is not made public, although I guess you had access to it. Could you talk about that a little bit? Right, there are, there's a public plan, it's 50 pages long, uh, and it's really uh, been uh, sanitized, um, and it relies on a non-public or confidential plan that was uh, developed and, and it's signed by, by two bodies, uh, the Ministry of Industry in Pakistan and the National Development and Reform Commission in China. It's not public uh, for several reasons, uh, but the main one is that it would uh, obviously make things more difficult for the Belt and Road in Pakistan. There's a number of things that appear in that plan that Pakistani public opinion would not necessarily be happy with. And, and the main one, I think, is uh, there's a, there would be a certain disappointment to see 
that the economic future of Pakistan um, under the Belt and Road is to become a supplier of agricultural products and low-value textile products to China and to Chinese industry, precisely as a way to make it easy or possible for China to move away from agriculture to uh, still squeeze a bit of growth out of that process uh, and to build supply chains that can rely on suppliers outside China for your high value industry inside China. What are Pakistanis being told the uh, eventually end game is for their relationship to China? Well, there's always, uh, there's always the, the expectation and the hope, which is quite, quite powerful in Pakistan, uh, that Pakistan will be able to industrialize, will be able to develop the advanced technology, and that the Belt and Road will do that. Um, they're not being told lies, but they are not being uh, educated in the full context of the initiative. So far, the Belt and Road has had a positive effect on Pakistan, I think, in particular in the energy sector. But if Pakistani public opinion uh, could read uh, this uh, full version and see uh, how important uh, agriculture is uh, for the future of Pakistan, I think there would be an element of disappointment, of course. It's interesting that it's the Ministry of Industry, I think you said, of Pakistan, which signed the document on their side, and they're sort of agreeing to not reach the highest levels of industrialization under this plan. Uh, how do you th- what do you think went on in the background to get agreement on this document? There's some elements that, that are perhaps easier to accept. As I said, the energy sector, a bit of infrastructure, an important port in Gwadar, uh, but really agriculture is central to it. Um, now, you could say, I mean, as with almost everything on the Belt and Road, I make an effort to, to see things from both sides in the book, and I think you, you can always look at things from both sides. You could say, well, Pakistan is traditionally having trouble industrialized anyway. Um, it's actually probably not the case that the Belt and Road will contribute to deindustrialization in Pakistan because they never really had uh, an industrialization stage in the first place. And that a high, uh, highly effective and productive agricultural sector uh, will employ a lot of people and will have a short market just across the border in China. Uh, on the other hand, uh, more ambitious plans have, of course, been drafted and other countries uh, will perhaps be able to industrialize. The future that is being defended here for Pakistan is not South Korea or Taiwan. And of course, this is still, for many people, the dream, the Asian dream of being the next South Korea, the next Taiwan. That's not what the Belt and Road promises for Pakistan. Yeah, when you mentioned energy and um, agriculture, my first thought was, uh, I assume it's going to be energy, maybe perhaps nuclear, given their advanced nuclear program and solar. Is that what they have in mind as far as the energy sector? No, no. So far, there's new uh, coal plants opening and oh. new hydro plants opening as well. Um, China, and I think this is actually a merit of the Chinese approach, uh, starts from, from the basics, from the fundamentals. I think we in the West has in, have in some respects become too indoctrinated in a certain um, uh, academic ideology of development that doesn't always fit with the local realities. Uh, start from the basics, start from the ground up, uh, don't aim too high at first, uh, understand that you'll pay a price in terms of pollution in the environment, uh, but that's necessary. Uh, that was the path that China had to take. And so in a way, they, they reserve it for other countries as well. This is openly advocated that other countries will tread the same path that, that China had to tread. And it's at the beginning, it's a tough one. Uh, and there's no illusions about that. It seems very realistic. You could understand 
though why the Pakistani population might be a little unhappy to see that their next three decades are planned out as being um, basically in support of coal fire power. Right, pipes. and this this takes us to another problem that I think uh, uh, really impacts the Belt and Road and almost always negatively. Uh, the Belt and Road has difficulty, and China has difficulty dealing with, with countries that are democracies, and particularly Pakistan, a conflictual. Um, a highly politicized, uh, highly mediatized democracy. In some respects, it's a more uh, more in, intense uh, uh, democratic framework than than we have here in Western Europe, where everything is discussed with great intensity and polarized. And of course, once uh, issues like the ones we've been talking about for the past ten minutes uh, get taken up by the democratic debate in Pakistan, they sometimes get out of control. And the, and the, we saw that in the last election, and it could get potentially worse in future elections. So we've talked about broadening the idea of Belt and Road beyond infrastructure to perhaps a more complex strategy to avoid uh, middle-income development trap. But I believe you also claim that one can see hints in BRI uh, of how the Chinese would conceptualize a new world order that they might come to dominate. Could you comment on that? The basic idea, I think it's uh, relatively easy to accept that if China is able to create a new world order, which I don't think even China has any illusions that it will be universal, but in a sort of a game of percentages, it will be very influential in some areas where China will have 90% of, of influence over policy decisions and only marginally uh, present in other areas where China will only be able to influence decisions that are particularly important for Beijing. Uh, but an order of this kind, which is not homogeneous and it's not universal, uh, I think is plausible and could very well take place and, and happen in our lifetimes. Now, the, my premise is that if this happens, we shouldn't expect it to be a neutral technocratic order. Uh, and we shouldn't expect either that it would be resemble a Western political order. It will have its own values, its own constellation of values. It won't be a mutilated version of the West. Uh, I see a lot of this in discussions in the West, that China is exactly like us, but regret regrettably, it lacks uh, some things that we have. It lacks democracy, it lacks freedom of speech. It is a sort of an amputated, mutilated version of the West. Now, I don't really buy this. I don't agree with this. China is its own universe, its own constellation of values. It lacks some of our values, but it has some values that we lack. And so the exercise, which I do only in a very preliminary way in this book, hopefully I can come back to it, but it's not an easy exercise. The exercise is to try to chart this geography, this landscape of values as it exists in contemporary China. Yeah, I would say even for myself, someone who's been around a lot of Chinese people but grew up in the West, um, it's a little bit hard to articulate the set of things that might be sort of naturally acceptable uh, in the form of government or government control in a Chinese culture, Chinese civilization, uh, but which would be very uh, difficult to accept for Westerners. But it, it's it's hard for me to articulate what those things are. I just feel like I have a sense of it. Isn't it clearly a certain level, I mean, obviously a certain level of control and surveillance, right? A limitation on certain civil liberties as long as you have economic development and comfortable standards of living. It seems like partly it's the promise that Russia has sort of made but not actually held out to its population? 
I think you're describing it more functionally than culturally. So so there, there are cultural underpinnings for that functional outcome, which is that, for example, the kid may have heard through his entire life many historical anecdotes about the a wise king who rules over a kind of not-so-wise crowd of people. And if you accept those cultural stories as nor- not just normative but descriptive of human life and human civilization, then you're more willing to accept that, oh, yeah, well, she knows better than I do what we should do about this, so let's just wait and see. And it, it's that kind of thing which I think is hard to articulate. It's, it's almost like, even for Europeans, like you could have a hard time explaining why Americans naturally accept the idea that I could have an AR-15 in my bedroom, uh, whereas they would regard that as the craziest thing on the planet, right? A, a so, lot of East Coasters regard that. Many people in America do regard this equally crazy. Well, those, you know, yeah, maybe not the heart of America. I think it's a, it's an exercise that everyone can make, and it's it's an interesting one that I, you know, if I was still a, a teacher or a professor, I would have my students uh, make, which you know, watch two movies, a Hollywood movie, and then let us say Wandering Earth, this science fiction Chinese movie that came out one or two years ago, and, and try to compare the the approach to life the approach to ethical and aesthetic values and try to see the differences. Uh, I think as, as you were saying, Stephen, it's, it's easy to sense immediately that there's a fundamental difference there. And then it's very difficult to articulate. And I think the reason it's difficult to articulate is that we also in the West have a hard time stepping outside our own way of looking at things, our own way of looking at the world. And uh, usually we make the mistake, uh, let me stress this again, uh, of only seeing what China lacks when compared to us uh, and being completely unable to see what China has compared to us. So it's a very difficult exercise where literature, movies, the arts are at least as important, probably more important than politics or economics. I think it's, yeah, I was just in, uh, in Nigeria this summer and they're very open and articulate about the ways in which their society differs from the West as far as the importance of community vis-a-vis individuals. And they're really, really explicit. You know, Americans, you are very individualistic, whereas we, for example, care about uh, uh, supporting everyone. And, you know, I, I went around the table with a couple friends at dinner and just asked them uh, straight up, how many people in your extended family are you supporting with your income? Uh, actually, someone gave, they gave me numbers, but one guy said basically half my income goes to uh, my extended family. And uh, so I think it's, I think people are, maybe Americans may not be aware of this, but I think the rest of the world is often forced or at least is very much aware of the which ways in which they differ from the United States in particular. And I think the idea of uh, kind of being more community oriented is probably one of the, I expect that's probably true of China. Definitely more collectivist, uh, I think. No, absolutely. That, I mean, that's, that's one traditional way to start, the role of the individual and community. And I think it's true of the collective. Um, you know, but that's, that's true not only of, of China, that's true of Turkey, that's true of Central Asia, as you said, it's true of Africa. Um, in a way, I think it's the West here that is exceptional and different in the way that it's taken individualism to uh, almost a logical extreme. Uh, but but not the case in other societies. But I think there's many other differences. One difference that I'm interested in in the book and and, and even beyond uh, is the relation to technology. I think we now are seeing completely different ways to look at technology being developed in Europe, in the United States, and in China. And here I like to give this example because uh, we may end up concluding that China, at least for me, who am someone who's in love with technology, who thinks that uh, the best we can hope for mankind is going to come from technology as it has come in the past few centuries. 
uh, I think China has a more active uh, and more optimistic uh, approach to technology than we now have in the West. Um, I'm very concerned about this enormous reluctance, resistance, fear that is developing, particularly in Europe, but not only in Europe, it's also the case in the US, um, against technology. A book that came out two years ago was The People versus Tech. Uh, and all these things are now accepted as normal, um, in a way very different from the, uh, the centuries where the West became dominant in the world. And in China, you see these banners uh, on the, on, on, in Beijing, on Beijing hutongs, saying, uh, embrace change, uh, embrace the new. They are directly related to reconstruction plans in Beijing, but in a way also a symbol of, of a different approach to the future, where uh, you're committed to it, uh, you embrace it, uh, you know that uh, it contains dangers, but also promises, uh, and that the question is how to balance the dangers with the promises, but there's really not a question of stepping back, waiting. Uh, whereas in the West, we have now, for reasons that we can discuss, this approach of waiting, uh, uh, stepping back, um, and, and putting in some cases really uh, stringent limits on technological development, one way or another. So that's also a different way to relate to time, uh, the discussion can become very philosophical very quickly, but you know, different ways to relate to nature, to relate to other people, to relate to time, to relate to pleasure, uh, to relate to death. I think these differences are present as you move uh, beyond cultures and between cultures. This is something that fascinates me, of course, but it's one of those uh, issues where you realize you would need 10 or 20 lifetimes to even start to understand them. Um, because this, the understanding here is so slow and comes so slow. This is one of the areas where I think actually the differences between the United States and Europe emerged uh, quite a while ago. You know, the sort of techno skepticism, and it's it definitely. I think the U.S. is not hom homogenous by any stretch of the imagination, and there are certain segments which are very resistant to technological change. I, in fact, came from a region of the country that was very left wing and also in many ways fairly, at least parts of it, fairly anti-technological, unlike similar left-wing areas in the West Coast, which were pro-technology. But in Europe, it, Europe is in many ways, I think, much more skeptical than many parts of the U.S. And the parts of the U.S. that are also incredibly forward-thinking and open about it. So it's a lot of homogeneity. I guess I see as there's kind of a gradient, perhaps, maybe from Europe across the United States. Um, and then across the Pacific. Across the Pacific, exactly, yeah, with the peak... Uh, Perhaps, perhaps maybe the peak maybe in Silicon Valley and maybe a little bit of a no, no. I here. think the peak is in Beijing and Shenzhen. You think it's more of, than more than Silicon Valley? Yes, I think so. Yeah. It, um, over the summer, I was I kept getting invited to speak at these various AI meetings, which happened actually all across the globe, and it was very strange because the Europeans took great pride in their power to regulate technology. They were they would boast of GDPR and the ability to impose uh, all kinds of laws on the entire planet uh, related to technology. The Chinese were by far the most optimistic, uh, generally about say AI, and the Americans were kind of in the middle. So, but, I, but if you if you segment America right into say the West Coast, kind of California, separating from the rest, you honestly think that overall the mean in yes. China is higher than the mean in Silicon yeah, Valley. Yeah, I, I think that. Oh, maybe not overall. I mean, I don't know what a rural peasant knows about these things, but if for urbanized members of the technological elite compared to the technological elite in Silicon Valley, I would say, yeah, there's uh, probably possibly even more techno-optimism in China than in Silicon Valley. 
and there's a, I mean, there's a fundamental difference uh, in, in the way Chinese and, and even Silicon Valley look at technology. I think lots of people have commented on. Uh, Silicon Valley is, is rather idealistic about technology. Even this fixation on software and, and the idea that hardware is not interesting and nothing really is happening there uh, is revealing of this. Um, that um, it's pure ideas, uh, pure creativity, but very much divorced from the real world to the point where interesting things, exciting things that are happening in Silicon Valley never cross the boundary to the real daily life of people. In China, this border does not exist. In the good Marxist tradition, uh, the real world and ideas are merged together. And so once you have an idea for a specific product, you're already working to put it on the street. Uh, and the culture of tech in China is much more led by uh, sort of uh, uh, engineers and entrepreneurs wanting to make a quick buck than by uh, software artists. Um, I think in some cases, Silicon Valley has become the place of software artists, uh, very much divorced from the real world. Uh, you know, there are different ways to phrase this, but I think it's, a, it's an obvious difference. Um, the, the, the velocity with which uh, technological development is diffused to the whole society in China is just staggering. I think that's where, where, where the real difference is, because clearly in terms of pure innovation, America is still ahead. But then those things uh, are kept in the lab. Um, for too long and perhaps indefinitely in some cases. It's definitely true that in Silicon Valley, there's a lot of utopian ideation. So when someone thinks about a new technology, they immediately start thinking about the utopian world that it's going to lead to. And the Chinese are much more practical. They're looking at sort of uh, gains on the margin that you're going to get from this technology right away. And, and they're more focused on implementation. Your brief soliloquy on the intersection of Marxism and technology strikes me as a great book topic because... The idea that you really want to bring technology down to concrete applications is something I think is not fully discussed. I mean, we don't need so many more delivery apps. We probably need something that's going to change people's lives in more concrete ways. But you see, I think this is a kind of a bargain that we have in our societies, in particular in America. Because you have many groups that are resistant to technology and you have other groups that are infatuated with technology, futurists of different kinds, there's a kind of unconscious uh, and uh, implicit bargain where the futurists are allowed to develop their ideas provided they don't affect the rest of us too much or too quickly. And so they live in their own separate worlds. I think it's a, a kind of a, it's not a coincidence that we have this. I think it reflects the way different social forces have uh, been uh, led to a sort of a, a grand bargain and uh, have been the differences between them have been negotiated implicitly or explicitly. Do you feel confident enough to make any predictions about how a Chinese-led world order might differ in terms of the utilization or development of technology from a U.S.-led order? Yeah, I think it'll be it'll be fast. I'll be breaking things all the time uh, with lots of unintended consequences. Uh, I describe in the last pages of the book on the Belt and Road uh, a little bit of this vision: infrastructure projects that will. Um, you know, blow us away in some respects. I give a couple of examples, a bridge over the Caspian. Uh, then the conquest of space, where I think uh, China is very interested in and probably will, will move rather quickly. Um, things of this sort, where I think we'll see a lot of action uh, and where China will will not be as worried as, as, as we are about the consequences, or at least will be confident that it can manage them. 
And probably this will be a focus and a source of conflict between the U.S. and China. Space in particular seems an obvious area where, where conflict could very quickly get out of hand. Bruno, you don't mention the kind of spread of, uh, I think, often American-generated but Chinese, uh, you know, disseminated surveillance technology. Um, there's been a fair amount of discussion of China exporting these technologies to some of the countries in the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, do you see that as an, an integral element that at least come along with uh, maybe Chinese technological world order? Yeah, although, you know, I would, I would like to make a number of distinctions here, if possible. Uh, clearly, some stories, and I think I mentioned them in passing in the book, but some stories about how this technology is being sold to African governments as a way to control the political opposition uh, is something uh, that should concern us all. On the other hand, um, I'm perhaps not as concerned as, as most people about other uses of uh, visual recognition in particular. Uh, it seems to me that in a way um, we already have uh, this body of control, these technologies of control, uh, particularly if you live in Europe, uh, you, you, you send them everywhere, you know, there are IDs, uh, people have a lot of accumulated information about you, the authorities. And some of this technology may help actually prevent uh, uh, judiciary errors or police errors. Um, so I'm not as negative as most people, I'm not, I'm a bit surprised, perplexed by this reaction, which is now very common in Europe and parts of the US, that if uh, something is high tech is by definition uh, suspicious. And, and that I don't get. It's about the use that it's made of it. But obviously visual recognition has enormous potential to make our lives better and to make uh, our societies in a way freer. No, isn't this the case? That if one can prevent judiciary errors of all kinds, provided we have rule of law and we have independent courts, don't I prefer that there are cameras everywhere in London so that I'm not wrongly accused of having been involved in a crime because there will obviously be a camera that filmed me somewhere else and it will be very easy to prove that I was not involved in that. This is I mean, this is, I'm, I'm not saying here anything, I think, particularly uh, uh, um, uh, outlandish, it seems obvious. This is actually a theory that I had years ago. I got very interested in the issue of wrongful convictions and my hypothesis was that wrongful convictions would eventually disappear. Um, maybe this that's overly optimistic, what would drastically reduce in prevalence simply because not just would you know where people were because of uh, cameras, but and one of the main problems with wrongful convictions is people don't have alibis. They can't account for their whereabouts. But with wearable technology, you likely would know not just where somebody is, but what they're doing at that point in time. Mobile phone and DNA. And and like shirts, right? You kind of know probably if someone's moving aggressively, perhaps, at a particular time. And that would make it very hard to convict someone of carrying out an assault or murder or rape, perhaps. Um. So I think that if you conditional on having trust in your institutions, then this kind of law, potential law enforcement technology is a good thing, right? It reduces the crime rate, makes you safer, makes you less likely to be wrongfully convicted. But the moment you lose faith in those institutions, then they can lock you down immediately, right? So if the bad people get in charge. So it is it is definitely a double-edged sword. Um I grew up in an area where people were convinced, my mother's convinced that uh, the government was tapping her phone. In fact, she let me know that she could hear the ping on the phone. This was, she wasn't just crazy. This was, a, she was, it was the beliefs kind of crazy, but it was quite pervasive in this sort of community at the time. I think it still is in large parts of the U.S., often uh, educated uh, populations. 
Well, I think that's where we see a difference between Chinese perceptions and Western perceptions. You know, uh, my impression living in Beijing last year is that in general, people are happy with the impact that these technologies have had so far. Chinese cities now, and even the main cities, are among the safest major cities in the world. Beijing is the safest major city that I know. And uh, a lot of the reason for that is, is the new uh, surveillance technology. So when you ask people, they will be concerned about some of the uses and the consequences, and they are. You see that in discussions on uh, internet boards and so on. But they see also the positive consequences, uh, which are already present. How do they feel? And about it seems that? to me this is the best approach, a critical, cautious approach, but not necessarily excluding these technologies simply because they are tech. How do people feel about this sort of current social uh, credit credit rating system, which is really plays off of the current technological ability? So you, you anyway, you know a lot more about this than I do, Bruno. But can you explain what this system is? Well, and- well, the system isn't isn't in place yet, right? There's some pilot projects in limited cities, and there are some plans that have been published, and they probably will never be implemented according to the to the initial schedule. Uh, so it's something China is moving towards, but again, another error of perception in the West, the system doesn't exist yet. Uh, of course, every month or every year, that's why it's interesting to, to live there rather than see it from afar, uh, there's a new development. Uh, I believe, uh, no longer in China, but I believe last month in some cities, uh, we saw the introduction of um, some uh, uh, image recognition technology for jaywalkers, uh, in some major Chinese cities, and all pieces are being put in place, but so far we don't have the general infrastructure or the general framework for, for such a system to work. And authorities, as far as I know, are still looking at uh, its uh, pluses and, and minuses, pros and cons, and, and, and trying to tweak the system in certain directions. So it's not in place yet. But there's a vision, right? There's a vision that you would lose social credit for basically violating... That's, yeah. And, and, and some elements of it are in place, but I believe there are elements of it that also exist in the West. Uh, so if you commit an offense on a train, uh, you will have uh, difficulty traveling in the future. But we have that for airlines, uh, certainly. Uh, the scale is different and the ambition is different. And as you say, the vision is already there. It's published. It's, it's public. Corey, would you like to live in a universe with an un- omnipotent, omniscient God who punishes wrongdoers? Would that be a good thing? I guess it really depend upon the threshold <laughs> and whether there's any sort of... Um, I, the reaction is probably no. <laughs> I'm a little more anarchistic in my outlook. <laughs> but a lot, in, in reality, right, it would depend upon uh, what's being punished and what the rules are and whether there's any kind of democratic response. I, I, I'm a believer in... Well, let me, let, me raise a, let me raise another issue on this. Um, it might be the case that the next wave of technological development is simply not very sympathetic to our political and moral intuitions in the West. Uh, previous waves of technological development were very congenial to us because they fit with our individualism and our liberalism. The automobile is, is a perfect example of that. It's almost a liberal project in itself. Um, gives the individual autonomy, privacy, and and so on and so forth. Now, it does seem that, um, unfortunately, perhaps, the next wave of technological development, big big data, AI, is actually rather antithetical to liberal political intuitions. But what this means is that we'll be at a permanent disadvantage in the West and in liberal societies because all this seems very strange to us and all all this seems very uh, scary to us. 
Whereas in China, uh, perhaps they will be now swimming not against the current as they did in previous centuries, but actually have, uh, uh, swimming al alongside the current uh, because these new technologies, big data AI in particular, are much more, uh, uh, they, they seem to suit uh, a certain political and ethical worldview that exists in China better than, than it suit our own uh, political worldview. Yeah, I would agree with that. That's true, I think, from the automobile through the personal computer through the early internet. Um, a friend of mine who's a, a federal prosecutor and now a novelist made the same argument, at least as far as the trends go about DNA testing. His, his view was for the first few decades, uh, this technology was going to allow people who were wrongfully convicted to get out of prison. But at some point in time, you're going to get most of those people out of prison, and then it's largely going to be used to convict people. And so, you know, probably rightly so of crimes um, that they uh, they should be uh, convicted for. But it was going to be something that the civil libertarians and the uh, anti-wrongful conviction people would then find turned against them as defense lawyers. Well, maybe we're at a moment where we're recognizing for the first time in our history that technology and, and liberty or technology and liberalism, at the very least, don't go together. But that's a very dramatic uh, moment uh, because it really raises the prospect of uh, of the West falling behind, but, China in particular. But didn't Orwell see uh, this? If, I mean, Orwell saw this back, you know, uh, in the early middle part of the 20th century. Well, I think Orwell envisioned a victory for totalitarian control, even without super high technology, right? I mean, it was pretty low-tech Stalinist type stuff that was in it, it was, but it was, rats it was, in cages. But it was controlled <laughs> by pervasive surveillance, right? It was controlled. The propaganda was the, was effectively television, which was new technology at the right. time. The vacuum tube TV set was watching you while you watched it. Exactly. That's right. And you. Um, I, I want to switch topics slightly and talk about the relationship between Russia and China, which... Um, Bruno has written quite a bit about. And I think when I first became aware of Bruno, it was through an essay that he had written, which described some conversations at a policy meeting called Valdai. And I think you were talking about the changing attitude of Russia toward China. And perhaps this was at a moment when U.S. pressure, U.S. sanctions on Russia were at a kind of peak. And uh, maybe you could just comment on that. Well, the, the, there are different ways to look at this, at the relation between China and, and Russia. And uh, uh, depending on whom I'm talking to, you'll sometimes hear that the potential for an alliance is there and it will be developed. And other times that there's historical rivalries between the two countries. And, you know, they're both true. It often happens in politics, particularly in geopolitics. You can look at things from both sides and you can make a plausible argument either way. But... Uh, I think you have to look at the main trend of development. And the main trend of development is clearly that both China and Russia see an opportunity to overturn the existing order, which to us may look like a neutral, impartial order where everyone has an equal chance, but to them seems like a Western American-dominated order. So the plan is over the next two decades to overturn this order. Now, once you create a new order, a multipolar one, where there will be five, six... Uh, different uh, centers of political power in the world. At that point, it's obvious that those centers will be competing um, between, between themselves. And so China and Russia will have their spheres of influence and will have uh, their processes of rivalry and competition. But that's a question for 2050. Uh, until then, there's a process which both China and Russia regard as uh, unpredictable uh, and, and slow of overturning the existing order. 
that's what I think we should focus on rather than getting distracted by questions, which honestly I've gotten a bit tired of, of discussing whether there will be a competition in Central Asia or in the Arctic, or whether the Russians are afraid of Chinese waves of immigration in Siberia, or whether they had a war in the 60s or so on. You know, you can always bring these, these points up, but focus on the main thing, on the main trend of development. And that's clearly one where China and Russia are moving together and alongside. Right. So I, I find it persuasive that to the extent that those two stay aligned over the next 20 years, uh, they can make life very tough for the U.S. Um, I guess I don't quite see China. I mean, Russia is one of these poles of influence. I just don't see uh, upward trajectory in their GDP growth that's going to allow them to become one of the main uh, influencers in the world. Maybe something will change, but they, that the future for their economy, which is basically is largely based on oil and gas, yes, is not they, bright. Well, right. They, well, well, Look, look at it. Look at it this way. You know, sometimes I hear, you know, Russia is in a deep economic crisis, uh, doesn't have anywhere to go, and so on, because it doesn't uh, innovate, uh, it doesn't have human capital, it's too reliant on commodities. Oh, it's got human capital. That's not I think. Yeah, but that's not a crisis. That's the Russian model for the past three or four centuries. It was always like that. Uh, it was uh, like that under under the Tsars, and it was like that in uh, under the Soviet Union. And still, with all those problems, with our persistent and historical, uh, Russia has been a superpower for centuries. Uh, so I, I don't think we should we should be complacent. I, I don't about think that. I don't I don't think it's a superpower now. Well, look 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 at Syria, where effectively uh, Russia beat the United States in the Syrian game. Well, because now, the we US... can discuss whether whether the U.S. was using uh, all its resources and all its power was fully committed or not, but but that's the outcome, and that's. That's the perception uh, pretty much everywhere. Well, but look, they just simply pulled out of Syria, right, and left it to Russia. And you have a fairly weak power that controls an area where there's where they're the strongest, right? But all the other powers, the West, France pulled out, and Britain was not involved. You know, nobody wanted to get involved there. I don't think we're claiming that this the Russians are a superpower the way, for example, the Soviets were. I think the claim is more that if Russia and China have a high trust relationship, so that China becomes, for example, one of the primary buyers for their natural resources, specifically uh, energy, um, that that will stabilize them, and it will actually protect the Chinese from the most dangerous thing for them, which is U.S. interdiction of their energy supplies coming from the Middle East. So at that point, uh, that alliance, if it's stable, becomes unassailable. And it's, it's also true that the Russians are actually in some military weapon systems ahead of the United States now because we've stopped working on a lot of stuff that's important. So hypersonic weapons, um, anti-missile defenses, um, all kinds of things that uh, surface-to-air missiles, all kinds of things actually they've built really high-quality weapon systems which the Chinese can benefit from. Well, I think, that, I think that's all true. That's all important. And, and in particular, you know, if you look at things from the perspective of Europe, uh, this is really a critical issue because if uh, Russia and China operate together, then it becomes very difficult for Europe to preserve its autonomy in, in Eurasia. Um, so I get the, the, the process that, that US decision makers should be worried about is one where China uh, is able to bring Russia into its orbit, uh, they work together, and then working together, they are essentially able to uh, transform Europe in, in, into a, a political and economic dependency. And then having power over these enormous regions, all these resources, sources of technology, commodities, energy, and so on, uh, the United States will be marginalized. Uh, it will perhaps not be under a threat, but it will be marginalizing the world. And that assumes that Europe and the United States are not going to form a competing alliance right, when pressed by 
Russia-Chinese alliance. I I expect that's it's my um, expectations that they really see a serious threat. You're going to find them being pushed together, U.S. and Europe. That's a scenario that you know. I'm very interested in this, of course, even personally. But th- that's a scenario. Another scenario would be one where Europe would, would, would break in half, uh, and half would, would would come under different forms of of control, or even would voluntarily uh, accept uh, Chinese and Russian influence, and another part would become more strongly aligned with the U.S. than it is now. Uh, that's another scenario. But it's an important question, I think. This brings us to the topic I wanted to cover, which is the future of the EU. And and one of the questions I wanted you to speculate about is, what is a plausible scenario where Europe actually does build up its hard power? It's obviously a gigantic economy, but they seem to have more or less, with the exception maybe of the U.K., more or less completely forsaken hard power uh, as a capability. Right. And, and, and in, in a way, it's, it's even worse than that, because, uh, you know, when you say hard power, I think you mean military power. But the problem with the EU is that it doesn't even use the power it has in other areas, um, the economy, technology, uh, market access, uh, capital, uh, currency, and so on. Uh, so it doesn't use power at all, it's not just hard power. It still believes that it lives in a world of uh, global integration and cooperation. Uh, and that could very quickly become an untenable position. Um, if you live in Europe, you already see Chinese influence everywhere. Uh, and slowly it's progressing. And at the very least, it's making it uh, more and more difficult for Europe to take decisions. Uh, it's dividing uh, Europe uh, and it's impairing the, the decision-making process. So that what could happen is Europe would be on a, on a, a trajectory of decline uh, and China's contribution in this sense would be to make it more difficult to reverse that, that decline. Coming back to our favorite test case of Huawei, last time I checked, the Germans and the UK are still maintaining uh, the, their independent capability to make a decision as to whether to use Huawei in their 5G networks. And I think right. ARM, which actually, ARM, which is a, a chip design firm based in the UK, has declared that despite U.S. Uh, wishes they are free to sell, uh, to license uh, their designs to China, and those form the process that those uh, reduced instruction set patents and intellectual property are used in the current Huawei handsets. And ARM is not concerned about the ultimate threat of having their IP taken over by Huawei. It's an interesting question. Yeah, I, I mean, apparently so. The company declared that they reexamined their whole patent portfolio and realized it was all British IP. It was not American IP, and they were free to license it to the Chinese, to Huawei in particular. So it, it you can imagine that it won't be that easy to form a hard U.S. EU alliance. Uh, you know. Oh yeah, I, it looks to me very difficult because. Uh, on the main issues on the table, rather than the very abstract notion of values, which sometimes disguises the real issues, uh, EU and US are on, on different tracks. Um, you see differences on, on 5G and Huawei, you see differences on the way to uh, react to the Xinjiang uh, issue, you see differences on whether uh, decoupling is an option or not, you see issues on whether Chinese companies can be placed on an entity list, on stopping Chinese investment, uh, on stopping cultural interchanges or educational interchanges. I mean, if you go through the issues, the U.S. and you are on, on different columns every single time. You know, I think my, one this one scenario I think is possible in the future is that, I think you talk about this in one of your foreign policy articles, uh, the competition between countries comes to resemble uh, competition between large companies in the tech sector. 
they're competing, but they also have to collaborate an enormous range of technologies. Um, they have strengths, right, in their core products, um, but they really have to license an enormous range of technologies from each other. So, so Bruno, uh, uh, you know, you're circulating among policy experts, not just in the West, but also in Russia and in China. I'm curious, what are some of your strongly held uh, geopolitical predictions about the next 20 years that just completely diverge from conventional wisdom among these groups that you circulate within? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm not sure I have strongly held and detailed predictions. Uh, and uh, I would say not through an insufficiency of my own, because I, I really believe some of these processes are still undecided. They still depend on the decisions that have not been made when we talk about 20 years. So will will Europe break apart or not? I think it's still uh, a clearly undefined uh, process, and we'll have to wait. Uh, we can track it. I'll be tracking for the next twenty years, but we can't clearly have a solution yet to what what's going to happen. Uh, but uh, I'm very confident about other things. I'm very confident that uh, we're going to continue to see uh, a decline of American power. Uh, that China will not collapse. Uh, we'll not have a devastating financial crisis in China, and we won't have a, a scenario where the Chinese economy will uh, will go back to what it used to be 10 or 20 years ago in terms of global importance. Um, I'm pretty confident that Africa and Latin America will not be significant global players within the next 20 or 30 years, uh, and perhaps we can we can find a number of other predictions I'm confident about. But if we go down to detail, it becomes more and more difficult. So we're coming close to the end of our time, but I'd like to get into your newest book, which I believe will be released mm-hmm. in about five months. History has begun. So it's a dig at, uh, I think, the end of history by uh, Fukuyama, which came out, I think, almost a little over 20 years ago, maybe 25 years ago. Can you give us a sense of- well, Basically, the idea, the idea is this. So uh, in, in Fukuyama, you have this sense that uh, Europe and, and America have already reached the end of history, and now- it's up for everyone else to catch up. Uh, we're here waiting. Uh, we are not going anywhere, and everyone else should join us. Then I think over the, the past 5, 10, or 15 years, people started to have doubts whether the rest of the world would join us. But my book takes, it to, takes the further step of arguing that actually we in the West are not standing still. And in particular, the U.S. is moving towards a new historical stage, creating a different society that, uh, for lack of a better term, has to be called post-liberal. That many of the liberal assumptions that we take for granted are uh, being transformed, but not, as a liberal would argue, because there's a process of institutional decay or decline, but because, in fact, something new is being created. It's not that liberalism in the U.S. is collapsing. It's that there's a process of creative destruction. And if you look from the point of view of the past, you only see the destruction. But if we try to place ourselves 50 years from now, I think we'll regard this period, the Trump age, as a period where, in, in, in Schumpeterian fashion, something is being destroyed, but something new is being created. I, I want to share a perspective from, I, I was in this uh, meeting in Riyadh that the Sovereign Wealth Fund holds every year, and it's quite a cast of characters that show up for this thing, because it's one of the biggest pools of money, of capital in the world, so you have people from all over the place. And... A money manager, a guy who runs a $10 billion hedge fund from Hong Kong, uh, I was chatting with him, and he said, this Trump thing is amazing because America had these tensions about immigration, you know, maybe the middle and working class falling behind, 
And it's actually in the process of at least addressing or, you know, maybe not resolving, but addressing these uh, conflicts. Whereas in China or Russia or some of these more traditional countries, things can just remain static and unresolved for decades and decades and decades at a time. So he was, he's not a Trump supporter, but he was just, he marveled at the flexibility of our political system for actually surfacing these uh, issues. Um, Corey, how do you feel about that? You're making faces at me. No, I guess it's, I mean, it's sort of obvious the political system is flexible, given you have Obama first. Yeah, exactly. Bush, can, Obama, right. you know, and yeah. then Trump, right? Obama so. to Trump in, in one flash. Or right? Bush, Bush to Obama, which yep. for many people was the yep. the gravitational shockwave. Right. It's interesting. I, you know, it seems to suggest that in some ways these countries are flexible. The U.S. is more flexible in China than in some ways, other ways less so. It's simply dissemination of technology, the response to sort of public sentiment that China seems to have engineered, the ability to survey the population and try to give them what they want in certain areas, whereas in the U.S. that doesn't really happen because we're not a command government. So again, it just shows that there are different ways in which these countries seem to be flexible. Let me let me finish with, with this thought because I think we're, we're approaching the end. I, I see a, 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 an incredible contradiction that I discuss in the book in our societies between what you could call the political sphere and the entertainment sphere. So in the entertainment sphere, everything exciting, unusual, different, we regard as a great virtue, attracts our interest. Something is happening in a movie or, or a TV show or has to, has, has to have those elements. But then, you know, remarkably, when we turn to politics, we still believe that the best kind of politics is a politics where nothing is happening. Now, in a way, we should be able to solve this conflict. Either it's good to have exciting things happen or it isn't. But it can't be. We can't have a completely different approach in these two spheres of our lives. So obviously, the whole world is looking to Trump and to America and following all these stories on a daily basis. But then we're supposed to believe that this is a horrible thing. I think if the whole world is following, it's probably because something important uh, of some historical significance is happening in America. And isn't that a good thing? Isn't that a virtue in of it in, a, in a, of itself? Right? It, it could be contraposed by. Uh, dysfunctions, instability, and so on. We have to be aware of that. But in itself, I think it is a virtue that uh, things that attract our interests are happening in America, whereas I don't see anyone interested in following politics in Berlin. That's something I discuss at, at some length in my book. There's a little bit of a bias because we are the global superpower and in some ways culturally dominant as well. So everybody is kind of following what's happening. I mean, I'm always astonished when I go to foreign countries and people are familiar with the most crazy celebrity figures in the United States, like Kim Kardashian. So um, so there's a little bit of that. But I agree with you that we are addressing issues that are relevant, for example, to the EU. So this whole question of immigration, what to do with industrial hollowing out, uh, perhaps due to China, perhaps due to technology, those are all problems they face as well. I think Trump, uh, let me just say very quickly, I think Trump is, is important from a historical point of view, not because of the substance of, of his policies. There's actually very little of that, but because of this uh, form of entertainment, uh, reality television, unreality, in, uh, 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 the idea of unreality, of fantasy, of turning everything into a story, into a movie. I think he's bringing this into politics in a dramatic way uh, that no one expected and no one is prepared for. And when we look back to the Trump years, I think we'll see it as the beginning of this way of looking at the world. Um, 
where there's really no longer any uh, distinction between uh, reality and unreality, between life and, and fiction. Are you familiar with Baudrillard, the uh, French philosopher from the 80s? He had this idea of the simulacrum, of course, you know, everything is surface, everything imaging. It's something that this started with Clinton, right? There was a big, you know, people were very, very concerned about the rise of spin culture under Clinton. Clinton introduced the idea of the permanent campaign. So it was on a much smaller scale, right? Right. In my book, I argue that it, it, it kind of started with Kennedy and, and, and then it accelerates with Reagan and Clinton. And then, of course, with Trump, it reaches its uh, maximum splendor. Yeah, with I'd Trump, put it that way. you finally have a reality TV star running the country. And that was a natural thing because, you know, if you're a little bit negative about democracy, you can say, wait, you're letting the masses decide what's going to happen. Well, aren't isn't there an instability that the kind of people the masses really love will actually then eventually be in charge? And uh, it was a little bit uh, anticipated by, for example, Berlusconi, right? So there you had a guy who was like living large with the ladies all the time and owned the media, the largest media conglomerate in Italy and also was running the country. I mean, so uh, Trump, you know, but it definitely is the, a new era. Remember, uh, remember Infinite Jest? You ever, you ever read it? I haven't read the whole thing, no. But remember, the, the companies could basically um, buy years and begin to advertise in years. There was like a year, <laughs> year. of the Depends adult undergarment. <laughs> but again, it's just this pressure to commercialize more and more aspects of a culture. Well, if you, if you think this is what American politics is now about, then, then the strongest democratic candidate, I think, could be Buttigieg. He's the one who, who most resembles a character in a movie, in a political movie. Uh, the small town mayor uh, who uh, went to Harvard and went to Iraq and uh, was gay. Uh, so we'll see. I think he has a lot of potential. We'll see in two or three months. So this interesting intersection between Buttigieg, Buttigieg and your uh, your book, actually, because you know his his history working for McKinsey, uh, as do I, I have to confess. And uh, one of the main one of the controversies related to the um, Belt and Road Initiative has been McKinsey's role in this. Have you been following that discussion? Well, from, from a distance, yes. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm sort of more, more attracted to, to this idea of the unusual candidate. I think it's more and more the case in American politics that the candidate that could win is the candidate about whom you could make a movie. Um, because people want to follow the story and they want to follow it to the end. And if they follow it to the end, they follow it to until November 5th. Um, that explained a lot, I think, of the Obama story and a lot of the Trump story. And uh, from this point of view, Elizabeth Warren would, would not stand a chance, but we'll see. We'll soon know. You know, what's interesting is if, if Buttigieg actually succeeds, he'd have to do something that Obama did, which is overcome a deficit basically due to his category. I think, you know, looking for its studies comparing uh, Kerry voters to Obama voters, um, Obama probably lost 3 or 4% from uh, the electorate due to his race. And Buttigieg would also be at a similar disadvantage because he's gay. Um, and so even if he has this great narrative, he'd have to overcome that deficit to win the election, which he very might. You know, the views on gay marriage and, uh, and gay people have changed radically uh, across the uh, uh, country over the past couple of decades. But he has but to in, win. In a, in, a great story, in a great story that attracts media attention and, and popular attention, you need this element of conflict, of the unresolved problem. Uh, could be race, could be sexual orientation, but but that adds something important to the narrative. But there's a but just as far as retail politics and his concrete politics, he's got to win over certain segments of the population that may be resistant. He's got to win over older black voters to get through the Democratic uh, primaries, and that's a group that's actually uh, fairly conservative. I think recently uh, black voters have 
become come to support a gay marriage uh, at a majority level, but I can speak honestly, uh, uh, you know, talking to my relatives and my friends that um, many black people were uh, behind uh, people of the corresponding class who are white on, uh, on gay issues. And so he's got a little bit of uphill battle to uh, win that segment of the electorate. Okay, I think we're out of time. So I want to thank Bruno for being our guest. Bruno, it's been a fascinating conversation. I want people to be on the lookout for your new book in five months. History has begun. Take care and I hope to have you back on the show again. Thanks, Bruno. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Till next time.